You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instructions. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions. I'm just not going to do a basic uh, meditation instruction. Um, We've been working in this class um, uh, with the Manual of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw. So it's a new uh, a translation of, of his a manual of practicing Vipassana meditation, which he did. And basically, he went into a retreat for six months and wrote this. Um, parts of it had been translated before, but it, it, it's never been translated before in its entirety. And so I just thought it would be useful to go through it. Um, the, um, the piece that we covered before was uh, purification of conduct for monks. The topic of tonight's talk is the purification of conduct for laity. The practice of morality is not as exhaustive for lay people as it is for monks. The purposes of lay people are served by either the five precepts or the eight precepts topped with right livelihood. One may wonder how these two forms of morality can serve equally well when some of the precepts differ. It is because their do's and don'ts are fundamentally the same. So. Uh, the five or eight precepts are the householder precepts. You may be aware of them. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures or from harming living creatures or from killing living creatures, depending on the translations. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely given sometimes or not given not stealing. I undertake the uh, precept to refrain from sexual activity. That would be more monastic. (laughs) We often hear this one translated for laity as, I undertake the precept to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct or uh, being careful with my sexuality. I undertake the precept from, uh, to refrain from incorrect speech or harsh speech or false speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from drinking uh, from intoxicated drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness or heedlessness sometimes translated as. So these are the five that you're, uh, if you've been around uh, Buddhist circles at all, you're probably familiar with. Um, The eight would be an additional three. 
I undertake the precept to refrain from eating at the forbidden time. So, afternoon. I undertake the precept to refrain from dancing, singing, music, going to see entertainments, wearing garlands, using perfumes, and beautifying the body with cosmetics. And number eight is, I undertake the precept to refrain from lying on high or on a higher luxurious sleeping place. And then, right, livelihood. Livelihood is the work that we do in order to live, to be right, in the full sense of the word, uh, a livelihood would, one, have to provide one of at least one's basic needs, two, it would have to be in accordance with ethical principles, three, it would have to make a useful and hopefully a beneficial contribution to society, right livelihood. The Buddha mentioned as examples of wrong livelihood dealing in weapons, human beings, so slavery, people smuggling, certain types of prostitution and living off uh, income generated by prostitution, a trade in flesh, that would be animal flesh, manufacturing and selling alcohol and poisons. Um, but we could expand the list if we wanted to. Trading in weapons, trading in human beings, intoxicating drinks, narcotics, poison, poison handling animal flesh such as a butcher or killing animals. So marijuana dispensaries are out. Out. Growing weed is out. So if one observes the five precepts and probably follows the precept uh, the precept of refraining from lying and inference, one also observes the three additional verbal precepts included in the eight precepts topped with right livelihood, namely refraining from backbiting or slander, harsher insulting words, frivolous speech, Likewise, if one refrains from the three bodily misbehaviors and the four verbal offenses, then one's livelihood is automatically pure, as required by the eight precepts topped with right livelihood. Thus, proper observance of the five precepts is basically the same as proper observance as the eight precepts topped with right livelihood. For lay people, even if they have violated the precepts before, there is no barrier to path knowledge or fruition knowledge unless one or more of the five obstacles to the path knowledge and fruition knowledge hinders them. If they are hindered by any of the obstacles to path knowledge and fruition knowledge, then both lay people and monks cannot attain path knowledge or fruition knowledge in this lifetime. So, when we're talking about uh, purification of conduct or the ethical training that the Buddha recommended for people it's it's offered as a uh, a necessity in order to become liberated enlightened path knowledge and fruition knowledge refer to two aspects of uh, the process of being enlightened path knowledge is the knowledge that you know when you come out of cessation 
that you've taken a path or you haven't taken a path. In the Buddhist uh, Theravada formulation of this, it's a four-path model, which is the eradication of ten fetters. So the first path would be the eradication of the first three fetters. Uh, The first fetter is uh, uh, a a belief in religious ceremony as the same thing as enlightenment. Or a belief in religious ceremony will uh, get you enlightenment. Uh, In our culture, in the Judeo-Christian, it would be more like observing uh, religious ceremony will get you into heaven. The second is a belief in a continuous, ongoing uh, experience of self is eradicated. And the third is the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. Do you know the the list of hindrances? One of the things I like about uh, Buddhism was that for so long it was an oral tradition, and so everything was put into lists for easy memorization. So the five hindrances, the first of which is craving, the second of which is aversion, the third of which is uh, restlessness and agitation, the fourth is sloth and torpor, maybe they're reversed, and the fifth one is doubt. So the hindrance of doubt. The hindrance of doubt is narrowly focused on whether or not you believe that the path to enlightenment is expressed in the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Uh, It it may be that you have doubts about lots of other things in your life, but that would be the one doubt that is supposed to be eradicated in stream entry. There's also a component of reincarnation there. Stream enters are said to be reincarnated only seven more times. The second path is the weakening of the next two fetters, craving and aversion, not the eradication of them. Panting for enlightenment. So the second path is called a once-returner, which indicates that if you take the second path, then you only are reincarnated one more time. The third path is the eradication of craving and aversion, and is said to be a non-returner, so that if you are enlightened to the third path and you've eradicated the first five fetters, then you're no longer reincarnated. So. In the Buddhist sense of being free from suffering, what they mean is that you're free from the wheel of karma or free from the, the wheel of rebirth, that you don't, don't take any more rebirth. And then the, the fourth path is the eradication of the remaining five fetters. Um, the, the eradication of the, the fetter for the desire for existence, the eradication of the fetter for the desire for non-existence, the eradication of uh, sloth and torpor, of the eradication of restlessness and agitation, and the, the last fetter to go 
is the fetter of conceit. Oh, what a brilliant meditator I am. Those last. And then you're completely liberated. But these five spiritual obstacles will prevent that from happening. So if you look at the progress of insight, which is what this is referring to really, is the 16 stages of enlightenment. Uh, Fruition is the fruition of the, the different stages of practice that you go through, which is another way of saying uh, you have the experience of cessation or nirota. Cessation is the cessation of awareness. So uh, depending on where you are in your practice, you'll have a sense that there's awareness and that there's also a consciousness of uh, a sensing experience which awareness knows. So awareness is the knowing capacity of the mind. It knows what the body-mind is experiencing through sensing. You have the capacity to sense something. You have the object that can be sensed when they meet. A consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. And then when the, the object that can be sensed is no longer in contact with the capacity to sense it, then the consciousness of that sensing experience ends and awareness knows that. So awareness is almost always there. We sometimes confuse consciousness and awareness and think that they're the same thing. It's one of the ways that you have the experience of a continuous self. The sense of self arises, awareness knows that, but as the sense of self begins to pass away, it becomes uncomfortable and we jump into awareness and it acts as a bridge until the next arising of self and then we jump back into the experience of self and we use that as a bridge that creates these continuous experiences rather than the the actual experiences which are arising and passing. So you all are aware uh, of the aftermath of not having awareness There's a part of sleep, deep sleep, where actually you don't have awareness, but all the other parts of sleep you do. So you're engaged in dreaming, you remember your dreams, awareness knows that you're dreaming even though you're asleep. But there is a part of sleep, deep sleep, where you don't actually have awareness. Uh, And the other place that you might be able to uh, detect it is uh, anesthesia. Anesthesia kills awareness. It doesn't actually kill pain. Um, So, fruition knowledge is that you know that you've had cessation, and path knowledge means that you know you've taken a path. It's possible to have cessation without taking a path. That's why they're different. So, when you have the experience of entering, say, cessation, Uh, for the first time uh, and you come out of it, you have the awareness that you've had the experience of cessation and then you also have a separate awareness of whether or not you've taken a path and you can come in and out of cessation and know that you've not uh, uh, taken a path. 
For lay people, even if they violated the precepts before, there is no barrier to path knowledge or fruition knowledge unless one or more of the following obstacles are in place. So one of the things that I think it's important to take from this is that uh, enlightenment is possible for householders. This is a somewhat controversial idea in our culture. Um, in, in some traditions, it's, uh, enlightenment is only available to monastics. In some traditions, it's only available to monks and not available to nuns because nuns aren't fully ordained in some traditions. Um, but here, Mahasi is saying very clearly that uh, enlightenment is available for householders. This, at the time that he first began to say this, was quite controversial. A lot of the stuff that he, he teaches was quite controversial. For instance, he thought that all householders should be practicing meditation. If you look at the way the monastic culture is in Asia now, it's said that maybe one in seven monks meditates. So the idea that not only should all monks be meditating, but all householders should be meditating is quite a radical idea. In the West, uh, as Buddhism came in, it came in mostly as a meditation practice. And in our culture, you you see that the, the biggest uh, movement around meditation is actually mindfulness, which is a secularized version of these uh, meditation practices. Um, we have a, a kind of theistic or religious uh, push around these teachings, but we also have in the West an atheistic uh, instruction around it. You, you may have noticed here that for quite a long time they were uh, um, part of the merch was a hat or a shirt that said Buddhist atheist on it. Um, I tend to be more in the atheist camp um, but I, 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 I don't have a dogmatic view of that. My experience is that when I approach uh, theistically viewing things that it, it doesn't resonate for me. Um, but I know uh, well some people for whom it does and I appreciate that quality in, in, in the way that they practice and I find it uh, a useful uh, discourse with them around uh, how my own practice should be organized but in terms of a, a, a feeling response um, that has uh, that creates the sense in me that it's a something that I feel I don't really have it. So. The first of these obstacles, the uh, uh, comma obstacle, refers to the five fatal types of misconduct. Killing one's own mother, killing one's own father, killing an arahat, injuring the Buddha, and disrupting the unity of the monastic community. Uh, these five deeds necessarily lead one to the lower world immediately after death. They jeopardize one's prospects for celestial rebirth and for path knowledge and fruition knowledge. Thus they are called intentional acts that have immediate results. Raping a virtuous nun is also one of these uh, obstacles. So I read the list, killing one's mother, killing one's father, killing an arahat, injuring the Buddha, and disrupting the monastic community. It's considered a karmic obstacle to enlightenment. Beyond just killing. 
wrong views is called defilement obstacle, refers to three types of wrong view. The wrong view that there is no good or evil, the idea that actions do not become good or evil and do not lead to good or evil results. The second is the wrong view that everything cuts off or comes to an end when one dies. The idea that no further existence will occur after death and that there are no good or evil results that come from good or evil actions. So, And then the third is uh, the wrong view that volitional action does not produce good or evil results. The idea that happiness and suffering arise by themselves without causes. So that's a question. Do you believe in the force of good? Do you believe in the force of evil? Do you think that they are actual things that happen, that move things through the world or not. And this is in some sense this theistic versus atheistic view of this. I don't, for myself, have a sense of evil in the world or a sense of the force of good in the world, but some people do. So the good, the idea of good or evil would be this what I view as a kind of moralistic view of karma. Um, Shinzen would say that what goes around comes around, but I haven't really noticed that uh, in my experience. I find many people do heinous things and they seem to benefit at least materially greatly from doing them. Um, I could talk about fracking as an example of that. wrong view that everything is cut off or comes to an end when somebody dies. So then we have the view of karma, we have the view of reincarnation. Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you think that this is one of many thousands of lives that you've had? Do you think that when you die you'll be reincarnated again? Do you uh, know or believe in the structure of rebirth from celestial realms down to lower realms? And does that affect your conduct as a result of that? Are you organized around doing meritorious things so that you can get a higher rebirth? And is that a a system of of being in the world that makes sense to you? Do you think that you can be in the world without that framework and still uh, be ethical, that there's a reason to to engage in being in the world in an ethical way that doesn't have the reward of a better or a worse rebirth. I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not advocating anything here really other than that you investigate your understanding of this. If you don't accept these correct views, these right views, and it would take away the possibility of enlightenment from you, would that be enough of a motivation for you to change your mind about them so that you could get the thing that you wanted? So, and then the last one, the wrong view that volitional action does not produce good or evil results, um, the idea that happiness and suffering arise from themselves. So this is a... a, a uh, again, we're talking about the nature of, uh, of karma. Have you noticed that 
when you take an action, the outcome is sometimes unpredictable. That you can think through the, the, the action to take and you can take the action, but the thing that you predict will happen once you take the action is not necessarily the thing that happens. And so the, this is this separation, uh, this thought of around karma, that it's the intention of the action, not the action that forms the good and evil response from the world. So that we focus a lot in, in talking about um, morality or ethics as the intention of the actions. If you remember the equanimity phrase, things are just as they are, things are impermanent, joy and sorrow arises and passes away. All beings are the heirs of their intentions and actions. So intention and action. Uh, joy, uh, your happiness depends on your intentions and actions, not upon my wishes for you. I care about you, but I cannot prevent you from suffering. Um, in some sense, the way that I hold that is that it, it is a way of dealing with the immense complication of being alive. You can think through the action you want to take, you can have great intention, and when you take the action, still not have factored in everything that needed to be factored in to have the outcome that you want. And so you have a different outcome than what you might have intended the outcome to be. So how do you, how do you adjust the, the thinking around karma for that? Uh, a good action re- re- retrieves a good result. Do you know the story of the farmer and the horse? There's a farmer in a small village. He has a horse which he uses to plow the rice paddy. Um, essentially, the entire economy of his, his life as a farmer is dependent on the horse. And one morning he wakes up and he goes outside and the corral is empty. The horse has left. The neighbors come by and they say, what terrible luck you have. You have the worst luck. Two days later, the horse returns with three wild horses. And the neighbors come by and they say to the farmer, what amazing luck you have. You always have the best luck. And the next morning, the the farmer's son goes out and attempts to break one of the new wild horses. And the horse throws him and he breaks his leg. And the neighbors come by and they say, what terrible luck you have. What awful luck you have. the farmer responds, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Two days later, a warlord comes through town and conscripts all of the able-bodied uh, male children, but he leaves the farmer's son behind because his leg is broken. And the neighbors come by and they say, what good luck you have. You have the best luck. And the farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? So, How do you account for this? process in which you take an action and something entirely different than what you intended happens. The next one is inborn inborn deficiency refers to an inborn uh, deficiency in spiritual intellect. Did you know that you had spiritual intellect? However, this is an obstacle only to path knowledge and fruition knowledge, not to celestial rebirth. So a lay person with this obstacle can be reborn into divine realm if he or she performs good deeds. 
So it's a complex system of morality. Insulting a noble one is the next, refers to an act of insulting or degrading a noble one with or without knowledge of his or her virtues that damages the prospect for both celestial rebirth and path knowledge and fruition knowledge and one can remove this obstacle however by apologizing to the noble one for the offense. So sometimes I react to this by uh, uh, understanding the system with which uh, monastic people need to survive in culture and how a culture embraces this uh, practice, the protection of them, the providing of them, of the things that they need. The obstacle of knowing, knowingly violating the monastic code is the next one, but this would be something that refers really only to the monastic, the monastic that violates the code, knowingly violates the code, um, are sorted into seven groups. It harms the prospect for celestial rebirth and path and fruition knowledge. The monk can be freed from this obstacle if he atones for the offense according to the regulations of the monastic code. Um, when I was in, in Burma and I was talking to uh, the Sedao, he was instructing us to do the practice of metta for living beings only because uh, if you practice for people who have already passed on you won't be able to enter into metta jhana and that the way that he was instructing it was uh, the practice was intended to lead to metta jhana and I asked um, one of the well the nun uh, who was there uh, what her opinion about that was that it seemed uh, that if you were able to get into metta jhana, you should be able to get into metta jhana for whoever you wanted to practice for. So what's metta jhana? Okay. Metta jhana is a highly concentrated state. Jhana is a state of concentration. Um, there are eight uh, jhanic states, uh, four regular ones, four esoteric ones. Metta jhana itself is limited to the first three jhanas using the the, um, the Sudamagi, I think. The Sudamagi. I have to put up with my mind mispronouncing things today. Um, the first jhana is five elements. You place your attention, you sustain your attention, uh, PT arises. In, in PT is a Pali word that means uh, rapture or energy in the body. So uh, Vitaka, you place your attention. Vikara, you maintain your attention. Uh, PT arises in response to arise. The arising of PT, Sukha arises, which is often translated as bliss. And then you come into Ekagata, which is a one-pointedness of concentration. The second jhana you drop in deeper and stabilize so you no longer need to place or sustain your attention. You're just in a state of uh, piti, uh, sukha, and ekagata, or rapture, bliss, and one-pointedness. And then the energetics of the piti becomes too coarse 
and you drop in further to the third jhana, which is just bliss and one-pointedness. So in practicing metta in the way that, that the Sayadaw instructs it, the intention is to enter into the jhanic state, so this highly concentrated, highly blissful state. If you were doing vipassana jhana, you would then slip further into, or drop further into the fourth jhana, so the uh, coarseness of the bliss is given up, and you go into an equanimous, one-pointed state. Equanimity is a compl- is totally neutral, so that the inclining or the intention of radiating kindness um, is not neutral. It is actually an intention to do something. And so, uh, in metta jhana, that's as far as you can go. You would have to give up the intention of metta in order to go into the next jhana. But if you can easily go into jhana with a living person, how does that metaphysical piece operate in terms of not being able to go into jhana for somebody who's not living? I ask the question, uh, if you believe in reincarnation and someone who dies is immediately reincarnated, wouldn't they be alive in another incarnation? And uh, actually, if you don't know them, that also inhibits the capacity for metta jhana. So, again, this is this, where do you find yourself in this place, this theistic approach or atheistic approach to the teachings? Do you require that, that the metaphysical piece be there and, and do you, uh, does it make sense to you, does it resonate with you or do you find that there's not much in the way of resonance there? you have enough interest, say, in exploring this, because I noticed that in, some people thought immediately that what they would do is go into metajana for a dead person uh, and then prove the uh, teaching wrong. I, have, I haven't actually explored it, because it, it isn't an interesting exploration for me. But. So, anyway... Um, I do find that a useful and interesting investigation for myself, and, and I would recommend it to you. What is the actual purpose of your living an ethical life? What is the actual purpose of making the decision to be a good person and then operating in the world from that place, that desire to be a good person, that desire to be helpful to the world? Do you need to be rewarded with a, a celestial rebirth? Or can you find in the practice itself of ethics, of being this good person in the world, that that in itself is enough of a reward? Um, mm-hmm. Well, I was raised Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so I was always raised with you know, the concept of heaven and doing good deeds to make it to heaven. But now as I explore this path, I realize that I want a more I want a meaningful life first. And so there instead of doing good deeds to achieve a status in heaven, I want I want to treat people with kindness to increase 
the meaning in my life. Good. So, um, let's do some practice. I was thinking we would do metta practice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I do want you to know that if you're thinking of starting a punk band, Metta Jana for Dead People is already taken. <laughs> I, I, so far, I've had at least five people tell me that they're going to definitely do Metta Jana for Dead People and, and see if they can get there. And uh, I'm curiously waiting the, the outcome. But what ends up happening is nobody thinks of it at the moment of practice. And so... They have no results. We're going to do this metta practice, which is a concentration-oriented practice, which is to uh, calm the mind. So metta is always cool, always kind, uh, coming into this place of being able to hold yourself in kindness and hold other people in kindness, even the difficult people. Ask yourself this question and you'll know the answer. What percentage of the time does the mind uh, respond to what you do in the world with kindness? If it's not 100% of the time that that happens, then I would recommend that half of your practice at least be metta, so that you can really begin to uproot the critical, painful, judgmental mind and retrain it to be constantly, consistently kind in the way that you hold yourself. This is a training that you can do. and There's such a great benefit in, in actually the mind constantly being uh, kind and helpful. I think that uh, the mind is supposed to be kind and helpful to you, but that often our conditioning is such that that isn't the skill that we're taught. We're taught these other ways of emotionally regulating our, ourselves, and some of us are harshly critical, you know, savagely judgmental about ourselves, and understand that you can actually train the mind out of doing that, and train it to be kind, and consistently, automatically kind. Um, and so I think that that's actually really valuable to do that, really makes everything better. Um, I also think that if you if you want to be fearless in your vipassana practice, then you need to have this this place, this uh, refuge of metta to come to, because it's it's pretty ordinary to push hard into vipassana practice and find it really unsettling. And so you need to have a skill where you can effectively withdraw from that unsettling experience, calm the mind, cool the mind, come back into a place of kindness, and then return to the practice of vipassana. If you don't have a place where you can withdraw from an unsettling mind that may happen in the vipassana practice, it makes you less uh, um, confident in your vipassana practice. So this, um, this refuge of metta that really is very effective, no matter how troubling the mind may be, that you can withdraw from that and, and come into a place of balance, of kindness, of coolness, and then return, of course, to the Vipassana. It's not a bypass or a, a refusal. It's actually something that supports this deep Vipassana practice. 
I know we just came, came from retreat and we did four days of just metta as a way of concentrating the mind. If you go on a typical Vipassana retreat, they'll recommend that you do just straight concentration for the first couple of days. Um, but in leading a retreat, what I can tell you, uh, having just done this, is that all of the typical complaints uh, of difficulties uh, that I would normally hear in the interviewing process with the, the yogis, I didn't hear at all. It was so surprising that the, that settling into the deep meta allowed people to shoot into the Vipassana practice and go right into this very deep way of practicing without that bumpy ride into it. So it was really quite surprising, not what I was thinking would happen, but also something that was very pleasing to me to have happen. And and for myself as well, that, that just calming, cooling out, coming into this place of real kindness and then slipping into the Vipassana practice was also really good for me. So I do really recommend that you have a robust metta practice uh, for these reasons.